Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. got your Bible with you, would you turn with me to a brand new book today, the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one uh, in the aisles, hopefully you'll see some baskets there. Uh, they've got Bibles in them and uh, please read along with us. Perhaps it'll be on the screen as well. It is. Uh, and those Bibles are free for you to take home as well. Let's get right into it, shall we? Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live in, uh, for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the name of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were uh, Ephrathites, Thites, from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, Orpah, and the other Ruth. And after they lived there about ten years, both Melon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in, Noah, uh, in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared and returned home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. When Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me may the lord grant to each of you that you would find rest in the home of another husband then she kissed them goodbye and they wept out loud and said to her we will go back with you to your people but naomi said return home my daughters why would you come with me i'm going to have am i going to have any more sons that could become your husbands Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if, if uh, even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. We're up to verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What a powerful story. It's incredible to see the way God works in and through anyone, isn't it? For me, the big idea, not only of this book, but of this chapter, is that God can and will use anyone to bring his love to everyone. That's what I want us to keep in mind throughout the sermon today. So I've got a question for all the married people. You might see where this is headed. Who here loves their mother-in-law? Well, it was a bit of a delay there, but we got there. (laughs) How much do you love your mother-in-law? Correct answer. Someone sitting next to their mother-in-law, I take it. Fantastic. 17 years living with your mother-in-law. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) A small but important distinction. (laughs) So I don't know about you, but I love my mother-in-law a great deal. The less I see her, the more I love her. (laughs) She was going to be here today, so I've got little jokes about her spread throughout, but in the end she couldn't make it, so that takes the fun out of it. Um, I was going to be able to say to her over lunch, well, it's biblical, what can I do? But love comes in many different forms. We have one word for it, and as we all know, it means so much more than we can express in English. This is the biggest problem I have with English. So often, there are concepts that we just cannot describe properly without going back to other languages. Instead, we've got three words for there that mean different things, spelt differently, and no one knows how to use but we've got one word for love when the Greeks had six. And even the six Greek words for love don't come close to describing the Hebrew word hesed. It's incredible the depth of these languages and all we get is love, which is a great word. But it just doesn't cut it for me. So in Greek, there's six words. There's eros, which is the passionate desire that's often associated with falling in love. Philia is the love that is the basis for deep friendship. Ludus, and I apologise to anyone who understands the proper pronunciation of these words, I'm going on the English written spelling of it, I've got no idea. Ludus is the idea of playful love. A young couple flirting when they're courting, the teasing that goes on, that's that idea of Ludus. And it's also, when you're hanging out with friends, there's a bit of banter, a bit of laughter. We've got agape, which always reminds me of Finding Nemo. You know that scene where in the submarine, eh, escape! Hey, that's spelled just like escape. (laughs) Sorry, bit off track. Uh, So agape is selfless love, often used to describe God's love for us. It's a love that doesn't consider the consequences. 
The love that puts others first. It's actually the basis for charity, the English word, not the Australian word, the English word. And it's the root of empathy. So while we use that word to describe God's love, it's actually something we should all aspire to. Pragma is an out, a long-standing love. It's about making compromises to help a relationship work. It's often, hopefully, developed in married couples. And it's the idea of giving love rather than receiving it. Psychoanalyst Eric Fromm said that we, need to, that we expend too much energy on falling in love. When in fact we need to learn more how to stand in love. And that's precisely what pragma is all about. And then finally, and this is the one that really gets me, philousia is the love of self. Now the Greeks went further with this and they actually recognised that that splits in half. There's the negative part of this love. That's the basis of narcissism. It's all about me. I love myself. I'm better than everyone. Not something we aspire to. But the positive side of this is that the Greeks actually saw that a healthy love for oneself, to actually like yourself, would increase your capacity to love others. If you don't have love and respect for yourself, that shuts down that part of your being and reduces your capacity to love those around you. So now the last question. How do you love your mother-in-law? Is it one of these six things? Can you identify that? This may well be the first time you're thinking about this. I do joke, but I can identify three of these ways that I love my mother-in-law. And I am sad that she's not here today because I did have some nice things to say about her as well. Before we go any further, let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with expectant hearts. I pray that you will open our ears to hear the message you have for us. Stir our hearts as we open your word and help us to understand more of the love that you have for each and every one of us. Amen. So in the book of Ruth, we see an example of a family unit torn apart by tragedy. Naomi is the central character in this chapter. She goes to the land of Moab because her husband decides to go. She's a tag-along at this stage. After a time in Moab, Elimelech dies. And after another 10 years have passed, their sons who have taken Moabite wives, also die. So Naomi finds herself alone in a foreign land without any family other than two daughters-in-law who belong there. Quite literally a stranger in a strange land. In that culture, that is essentially a life sentence. Stranger in a strange land without a man. So the stage is set for this book in the opening verse. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So the indication here is that this story takes place during the period of time between the death of Joshua and the crowning of Saul as the first king of Israel. We can also take that from the placement of the book straight after Judges in the Old Testament. And while the cause of the famine is not explained, commentators generally agree that a theological perspective is that the famine may be explained as a judgmental act of God. According to the covenant curses outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if Yahweh's people would go after other gods and persist in rebelling against their covenant Lord, he would respond not only by sending in enemies to destroy their crops and occupy the land, as in the book of Judges, but also by cutting off the rains and sending famine. And this consequence is specifically predicted in Leviticus 26, 18 to 20, and Deuteronomy 28, 23 and 24. I don't want to dwell on this, but it's important to set the stage. Throughout this chapter and this book, there is no acknowledgement from Elimelech or Naomi of their sins or the sins of their people. There's no ownership here. We know from the gospel that the famine is likely to be a result of their own actions as a nation. But instead, all we see from Elimelech is that he picks his family up and goes to a foreign land. And from Naomi, well, she just takes it personally. When in actual fact, God is quite specific about this. If his people walk away from his will, there will be consequences. So here they are in a foreign land, which isn't without precedence. Abraham went to Egypt. Isaac went to Gerar. And in both of those situations, Yahweh's sovereign plan was brought about through those actions. God can and will use anyone to bring his love to everyone. So living in Moab, a traditional enemy of Israel, Elimelech dies. One commentator notes that to seek refuge in Moab was both shameful and dangerous. And to add to the shame, Elimelech's sons take Moabite wives. While it's not specifically forbidden to take a Moabite wife, the offspring of that union is to be excluded from sorry, excluded from the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. So it's certainly not culturally acceptable. So after 10 years of marriage, which is somewhat symbolic of the 10th generation, both Marlon and Kilion die, leaving Naomi alone with her two daughters-in-law in a foreign land where she clearly doesn't belong. Naomi finds herself at the lowest of low points, kind of like St Kilda fans today. She's blaming God for everything. 
kind of like St Kilda fans. <laughs> With nothing left for her in Moab, she hears that God has returned his blessing to his people and she makes the only logical decision that she can make. She decides to return to her home. So she sets out with her daughters-in-law. Now up to this point, there really isn't a lot of indication of the title that we've given this book, or this series, A Little Book with a Lot of Love. Other than the fact that these three women have been married, there's not a great deal of love going on. But this is where it changes. Throughout this chapter, by and large, Naomi and Elimelech, for the brief appearance he had, are a long way from being excellent role models of Christian faith for Orpah and Ruth, who by virtue of marriage have taken on the faith and custom of their new family and are now, for all intents and purposes, believers in Yahweh. It's not unreasonable to assume that Marlon and Kilion were much the same as their parents. I want you to take a moment to think back to your earliest memories of being a Christian. For some, it wasn't long ago. For some, it seems like a lifetime ago. Some of us, like me, this is all you've ever known. But think about the role models that you had when you became a Christian. What sort of example did they set? Was it a positive example? Someone who stood firm in their faith no matter what was going on? Or was it a not-so-positive example? Someone who, even in, the t- even in the good times, just didn't seem to get it. Regardless of that, we need to remember that those role models largely shape the people that we become. So whether you had positive role models or not, we need to be thankful because if it wasn't for them, it's likely that we wouldn't be here today. So verses 8 to 18, we read the crucial aspect of this chapter. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. 
and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Naomi's plea to her daughters-in-law is filled with compassion for the two women. Having lived as a foreigner in Moab, she understands the difficulties that they will face in Bethlehem. Her appeal to the two women is best summed up by one commentator who states, hope for a better future is not to be found with her. So after initially refusing to return, Orpah does. But there's no indication from the author of this book as to whether that's seen as a bad thing to do, good thing. There's no judgment here at all. Culturally, that's what's expected. What it does do is highlight the incredible character of Ruth. And it leads to one of the more powerful and memorable speeches in the Old Testament. As I just read, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people, my people, and your God, my God. Ruth gets it. This is love beyond duty. She's committing to Naomi, but she's also committing to Yahweh. Even though the example that she has is Naomi, who still acknowledges the Moabite gods. She's encouraged her daughters-in-law not only to return to their household, but to their gods. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a big statement. That's someone who doesn't get it. If Yahweh is the almighty, all-powerful God that he is, why would a believer in Yahweh tell someone to return to their own gods? So this is the example that Ruth has. And thankfully, she sees right through it and goes, no, 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 no. Where you go, I'll go. So she's willing to accept whatever Yahweh has planned, whatever Yahweh may grant for Naomi and her in the future. Kind of like a young couple starting out, struggling to come to terms with the fact that they go for different football teams. Until the husband finally convinces his wife that for the sake of their marriage and their future children, she has to stop going for the team she's always gone for and change. It's all about marital harmony. She has to stop going for the team that won three straight premierships and still clinging on to from 15 years ago. She has to acknowledge and become a member and be fully immersed in the culture of a new football club and celebrate two prelim finals in two years and struggle through a rebuild that sees them fighting for the wooden spoon. But of course, that's all hypothetical. Um, a more serious example of this is a couple with one Christian and one non-Christian. We've probably all known this to happen. Some of you may have even been in this relationship. As a Christian in this relationship, trying to stand firm in your beliefs and your values, being in this constant tug of war with someone who doesn't share those values. While around you, people are saying all sorts of things. 
I've had a number of friends go through this situation. Unfortunately, I've seen couples fall away from the church because the Christian in that couple wasn't strong in their faith and allowed themselves to be pulled away. But praise the Lord, I've known more couples to go the other way. I've got friends who, by virtue of that relationship, are now Christian missionaries overseas. I've got friends who are serving in churches, having not grown up a Christian, other than for the fact that a Christian person saw something in them and showed genuine love and said, you're worth it, but you're not worth enough for me to change who I am. I've even got a friend who converted from Buddhism and now teaches at a Christian school. Because one young man in high school saw something in her and when all his Christian friends told him not to bother, she's Buddhist, he went, no, she's the one I'm going to marry. And it was a great pleasure to be at their wedding a number of years ago now. And Greg hiring Sandy was the best choice you ever made. So God works in the hearts of the unbelievers through everyone around them. So this is the incredible love that Ruth has for Naomi. A love that goes beyond all the types of love I mentioned earlier from the Greek into that Hebrew term, I said. And again, I apologise, my pronunciation is not good. The best description of hesed that I've found anywhere says that hesed cannot be translated with one English word. It is a covenant term. Wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, it refers to acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. Divine acts of hesed would bring the opposite of the pain and grief these women have all been experiencing for more than a decade. Hesed is often used to refer to God's love. And it's a significant statement that this term is used in regards to Ruth. In the NIV translation, hesed is translated as kindness. It's translated as other words in other translations, simply because we don't have an equivalent word in English. So Ruth is undoubtedly filled with her own grief at her own loss. Naomi lost her husband and her sons. Ruth also lost her husband. And throughout this entire chapter, we've seen Naomi battling with that grief very self-obsessed while Ruth goes out of her way to show loving kindness to her mother-in-law. This is far beyond any duty that can be expected. So it's easy to live out our grief, sorry, it's easy to live out our belief in God when things are going well, but when times are tough, it can be incredibly hard to do so, as we've seen with Naomi. When she returns to Bethlehem, she insists that the women no longer call her Naomi, which means pleasant. 
but instead Mara, which literally means bitter. For her life has become bitter. She blames God for that. The Almighty has made my life bitter. So it's all about Naomi. But it's not to be underestimated. In the midst of pain, there is often self-absorption. It's my pain. I know that I identify with this. That feeling that no one can understand what you're going through. And it's easy to turn our backs on God at this time. But it's a great pleasure to know that there are examples within our church of exactly how we should deal with this. I know they don't like the spotlight, but I can't not refer to Wayne and Virginia in this sense. A couple who, no matter what life hands them, have remained firmly rooted in their faith. They're a shining example of how to deal with trials and suffering. And I think we can all agree that God has clearly blessed them and everyone around them as a result of their faithfulness. You see, while God does at times allow trials and suffering, when we take the long view, more often than not, it's in order that God can glorify himself. As we saw in the video, and if you've read the book of Ruth in its entirety, you'll already know there is a happy ending. And this should serve as a great encouragement for anyone here today who is going through a time of suffering. Throughout this chapter, we see Naomi struggling, accusing God for punishing her, which we know from the story isn't the case. But regardless of all that, God doesn't punish her further. God blesses her. He redeems her. It was God's plan for this family to go to Moab because God needed Ruth, not just to redeem Naomi, but to redeem mankind. The genealogy is here at the end of Ruth. It's also in Matthew chapter 1. Ruth's son Obed is the grandfather of David and essentially the family line continues to Jesus. So through Naomi's suffering, through famine, the loss of her husband and the loss of her children, God brought Ruth into her life, not only to redeem her, but to redeem mankind. Ruth brings a great deal of love into Naomi's life, but far more important than that, she brings the love of God to all people. In the ultimate form of love, Jesus. In the context of the church, we need Hesed love. Galatians 6.2 gives the instruction to carry each other's burdens. Certainly, Ruth's actions are evidence of this. Where we can help ease the pain of individuals within the body of believers, we should do Hesed. Ruth's support of Naomi came from within the family, out of a sense of loyalty. I've said it repeatedly before, I'm going to say it again in the future. We are family. This starts within our own homes, but it's so important here as well. 
We need to do this for each other. We need to carry each other's burdens. If we can't do that here, how can we do it out there? So remember, God can and will use anyone to bring his love to everyone. Let's all be that anyone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have heard the example of Ruth's love for Naomi, we will all be inspired to show Hesed love to all that we come in contact with. As we as a church seek to build your kingdom in our community, may we all not ignore our brothers and sisters in our church, but build each other up and carry each other's burdens when needed. It is only as a united body in Christ that we can then seek to do your will and see your kingdom built in our community. Thank you for the incredible love you pour out on us without ceasing. Lord, we lift our prayers to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.